This is episode number 59 with the head of pitching programs at Driveline Baseball, Matt Daniels. Matt actually first started at the Texas Baseball Ranch, and he was introduced to Trevor Bauer, who really opened up his mind into pitching and thinking outside of the box. Um, He really credits Trevor for where he is at today. And he also kind of goes into what they do at Driveline. I mean, that Driveline is not just a weighted ball you know, facility. Um, it is something that is kind of like a family, a, a, a culture in a sense. And he gets into how you can't, why you can't just program certain pitchers to have certain workouts. You know, it is individualized for each player based on, off of what they need. Um, so I think that... It is very cool to see a data-driven facility like Driveline, and I greatly appreciate Matt taking the time to come on the show. So without further ado, here is Matt Daniels. We are now live with Matt Daniels, who is the head of pitching programs at Driveline Baseball and the author of Hacking the Kinetic Chain. Matt, appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me. So my first question is kind of how did you get so much knowledge and understanding like pitching and mechanics and throwing and all that kind of thing? Well, I guess, I mean, the background on that is as a player, uh, I've kind of recognized as a teenager that I wasn't going to reach my ultimate goal of playing in the major leagues. Uh, just talent alone. It was becoming pretty clear that I was being passed up uh, by kids my age, and I knew that if I wanted to reach my ultimate goals of playing baseball, then I needed to uh, do something extra. So, you know, around, uh, I guess, my senior year of high school, I realized I needed to gain more velocity because I wasn't being recruited by the schools I wanted to be recruited by. So I actually at that time started training out the Texas Baseball Ranch this was so long ago that Ron was still giving private lessons at that time. And eventually I had a really, really good senior year of high school. Uh, And then after, after that, I was set on going to Hill junior college with, you know, a couple of four year schools looking at me at the time. Uh, But again, the common theme of I could perform in games, but ultimately I just didn't throw hard enough. Uh, That theme kind of prevailed there. So uh, I knew that, I was kind of on a quest and to me uh, developing the measurables necessary to give myself any sort of opportunity to play pro ball became the number one thing in my life. Uh, And really the next most significant event uh, happened shortly thereafter Uh, that summer I was kind of training out the ranch and that was the first time I met Bauer. And uh, he was like kind of the first person that really taught me that, I don't have to listen to authority on, you know, what to do all the time. Like I actually have my own brain. I can think for myself. I can go learn all this stuff myself and be my own coach. It took maybe a year for that to like truly set in. But uh, looking back on it, that was like kind of the first time that I had really been introduced to that idea. Cause I mean, I was only child kind of growing up in the South, you know, you're taught, you know, yes, sir, no, sir someone tells you to do something, you do it. And uh, kind of like breaking out of that was a little bit of a process, but that was kind of the the initial part of it. And then I just, I don't know, uh, I became kind of 
obsessed with it afterwards. Uh, you know, things, uh, certainly like some of it maybe just makes sense to me naturally, but a lot of it was just, you know, instead of spending time going out at friends at the bars and stuff, I would be watching pitching videos and uh, trying to learn as much as I can. And I'm not in any way saying that everyone else should do that, but that's just kind of how I dealt with things uh, as a player. And then eventually the next biggest thing was three years later, uh, I accidentally discovered Kyle on Twitter. And then that's kind of how I ended up here for the first time. Uh, And then it just happens that, you know, I talked to Trevor about it and he also knew Kyle as well. So uh, that was kind of how I got in for the first time. And then, uh, you know, I didn't have the desired results my senior year of college, but I was throwing much harder. My measurables were better. Uh, Things were looking kind of good or better anyways. So trained here for a little bit after my senior year of college. And then uh, right when I went back to school to finish my degree, Kyle and Mike became business partners and uh, they hired me as, kind of a guy to run the remote training or like the first version of it. So uh, that was kind of with the understanding that once I was finished my degree, with my degree, I would come back up and try to train myself to play professionally. And a couple months after that, uh, a couple months after I moved to Seattle, I kind of decided that I liked working for two very smart people. And, uh, you know, when I was playing, I kind of, I felt like I was always having to defend myself, uh, you know, against coaches, and so I decided that that wasn't as fun anymore. And I like the idea of hopefully trying to help driveline turn into something big. And fortunately, a couple of years later, here we are. So I would say like, without going too far into it, that's kind of the summary of kind of like how I got into pitching mechanics, but then also like how I showed up to driveline as well. What makes driveline so special? I think it's the, it's just the people. I don't know how to describe it other than like, it's more than just a company to me. I think it's more than just a company to a lot of the people here. Uh, I mean, it's like, we also like go out together. We hang out outside of work. Uh, most of us in some ways, uh, you know, it's kind of like being in just a super cool band or something like none of us, like most of us are not from Washington. Uh, like Kyle's not from Washington. Mike's not from Washington. I'm from Texas. Sam's from Georgia. Ochart's from California. You know, most of our employees are from all over the place. So uh, we kind of we kind of bond over the fact that we're all trying to push the game of baseball forward. Uh, certainly, you know, with athletes in the gym and stuff like that, you know, we want to create the best athlete results possible, but I think there's a particular confidence about the way we go about our work that we kind of feed off of each other in that sense. Uh, we, we know that there's, there's a special combination that a lot of baseball hasn't figured out, which is how do you match analytics with kind of the intangibles that you see, you know, with the human eye? Uh, how do you match, you know, what is efficient training with, uh, what some, what, <laughs> with what is kind of effective, what we call eyewash for like certain athletes that, you know, maybe it just helps them feel better. You know, how, like, how do we match overall the intangibles with the actual, 
things that we know help athletes, uh, you know, on paper. So I think maybe some places don't put enough emphasis on the data or maybe some put too much. And I think, I think what makes us special is we're full of a bunch of guys that actually understand the game of baseball very well. Uh, but yet we also have the side to us that also understands how the data influences the game and understands like when to use it more liberally and then when to maybe back off a little bit as well. So I think, I think we just have like a particular chemistry here. That's awesome. And then that kind of like, that kind of like spills over into the training environment, like kind of matching up what we would consider like kind of old school toughness with, uh, new age data uh, kind of feedback on athlete recovery, you know, when we need to push somebody versus when we need to tell them to not throw and, and things like that. Like, I don't know, like some of it is, some of it is tangible. Like I can explain some of it in that sense, but then there's some that is hard to explain to people. So they just come out here and see it. So right, right. It's uh, like that's the best answer I can give on that one. It's, um, it's the culture. That's exactly what it is. Um, how do you apply? Uh, you, you guys are a data-driven facility, so how do you apply the data into like helping players, like like certain exercises and things like that? I feel like that'd be pretty tough. Yeah, well, it goes. So that starts off with the assessment process. Uh, any good training program is driven by a very thorough assessment, and so for us, like when athletes show up, we assess their throwing movement. Uh, them mark it up, put on biomechanics, uh, basically in our motion capture lab. And then we also do a throw strength assessment. We have a physical therapist on staff. And so we basically take those numbers and figure out where the athlete is most efficient. And then that's what we target first. So uh, Sam Breen wrote a really good article on training economy on our blog, but he basically makes the comparison to if you have a dollar to spend uh, for an athlete's training, how do you allocate that, you know, amongst strength training, uh, you know, skill training, uh, or like any sort of different things the athlete has to do, uh, which could include, you know, schoolwork and, and various things, uh, because nothing is free, no reps are free. And so the way we approach it is if an athlete needs a strength focus, then we might taper back the, the throwing volume and have them focus more on actually becoming better at moving weight, uh, and vice versa. Like the athlete is sufficiently strong and, there's something on the throwing skill side that they need to improve, then we may, you know, keep the, the lifting volume, uh, at a pretty, uh, medium volume and maybe put more emphasis on volume on throwing side. So realistically, like the data part is just like that part is funneled through just a very thorough test retest system. The athletes are retested on the things that they were tested on once per month. Uh, that's not saying they get markered up every every month, but in terms of like taking them to a training table, having them having their ranges of motion reassessed, having their strength reassessed, having their throwing movement quality reassessed, uh, that happens once per month. So that's ultimately what between that and also the athlete's goals, uh, you know, time constraints obviously matter. If an athlete's here for a week, then you know we kind of have to you know we have a limited uh, time to to work with them. So like, how do you target, there's some intangibles on like, how do you know, you know, 
what cues to give, you know, during a certain time period. You know, if an athlete has uh, summer ball coming up in like six weeks, how do you make their schedule uh, fit both? The th- how do you make their schedule like target both the things that they need to work on, but also prepare them for competition in six weeks? Like those are all variables that we consider uh, when creating a data-driven program. How many people normally train at Driveline? Uh, during the summer, it's busiest. We may roll anywhere from like 100 to 120 guys through a day on the throwing side. Whoa. Uh, we're not quite at capacity yet. We've got 34 guys coming in this week. So we split it up. Like our time slots are split up specifically so that we don't have any more than like 18 to 20 guys in the gym at once so that you know, we've got roughly four throwing trainers on the floor during that time. So we try to have a ratio of like probably like five to seven athletes per trainer, uh, you know, if we can help it. So that's kind of what we do there. Uh, the hitting side, uh, I'm not quite as sure, but those guys tend to operate at a little bit lower of a volume per slot, just because uh, you only have one batting cage versus like an entire plyo care wall. So there's a little bit, it's kind of apples and oranges in that sense, but we, yeah, at our busiest times, we can roll through, you know, hundred to 120 athletes in a day in the gym. Uh, and that's not including the amount that we train, uh, remotely as well. Should everybody be using, um, weighted balls? I don't know if everybody should be using weighted balls. I think there's certainly some people that just shouldn't be throwing at all, <laughs> uh, depending <laughs> on, depend, yeah, seriously. I mean, we've, we've worked various projects with pro teams actually where we do, we do an assessment on a professional baseball player and it's pretty clear that he needs to stop throwing for a little bit so i think the weighted balls versus non-weighted balls thing is i don't know i mean i don't think there's anything particularly special about a five ounce ball like it just happens that that's baseball regulation weight i think if you're a kid growing up playing you know, various games, you know, in the street or the cul-de-sac or, or whatever, like you're going to tend to throw tennis balls, baseballs, racquetballs, footballs, like you're just going to tend to throw all sorts of stuff. So I don't think there's anything inherently special about a five ounce ball. Uh, I think the question is more to, I think the question maybe is how, how do you like know what volume a athlete should throw at? Like, how do you know, what their workload should be, whether that involves weighted balls or not. I think overall that's got to come down to the athlete's individual choice. And, you know, certainly I am a proponent of weighted balls. I think based on what we have seen and through a bunch of testing that there are some legitimate uh, positives to using weighted balls. However, I also don't think that weighted balls are the thing that, you know, that, I don't think they're pixie dust either. Basically, uh, they're just a tool. Lifting weights is just a tool. Physical therapy is a tool, but there's no like one component that is going to take you from being, you know, an average pitcher to an elite pitcher. Like it's got to be the sum of multiple parts. And again, it goes back to the assessment on knowing which parts uh, to use, knowing how much of which parts to use uh, in order to create a program that's going to be optimal for a particular athlete because we could talk all day about 
what weighted balls do or don't do uh, to a large volume of athletes. But the problem is that you're working with particular athletes, like you're trying to help individuals improve. And so what may apply to a large body of athletes uh, may not apply to this particular athlete. So I, I gave an example on Twitter the other day where it's like maybe uh, over the, you know, over a sample size of like, say 200 athletes. And it shows that an excessive amount of shoulder abduction uh, is correlated with a higher amount of max Ferris moment uh, on the elbow. Like, okay, that's fine, but that might not be true for a particular individual. Like he may have a higher amount of shoulder abduction, but uh, his elbow torque is not affected by that. Those are like really important things to know because if you just apply information that is uh, based on a large sample to the individual in this case, you might actually fix something that isn't broken and set the athlete back even more than he was. So again, it's just like really important for us to look at all of those things. And honestly, like, like I'll give you an example. Uh, Ottavino came to see us and I didn't have him throw a single weighted ball. Like that wasn't, part of the thing he did some arm care stuff with some heavier balls but he didn't do like a single forward throw with us with like any sort of plyo ball like it was just all warm-up and recovery stuff uh now i think since then he's maybe moved on to some catch play with you know maybe some overload baseballs and you know maybe a little bit of plyo ball work but i mean our stance is not that everybody should throw weighted balls our stance is that everybody should understand what type of workload uh, they should work at. And then also understand like which pieces of training, like which parts of training should be included in their program. And so for them to realize that they have to get basically just know their body and get assessed like you were saying before. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of information behind it. I mean, this is, probably where we come in the most is by gathering a bunch of data and then being the people to interpret it to athletes and also coaches as well. Um, you know, we, we don't expect like athletes to just be able to walk in and understand what every number on a Tendo unit means. We don't expect every athlete to walk in and understand what the glove arm is supposed to do on a pivot pickoff throw. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that, I think there's a lot of value to the information our staff can communicate to the athlete. And so I think that's, that's where our business like is really helpful for athletes. Uh, but either way, like to your point, as long as the athlete develops like some sort of understanding as to why they're training the way they are and they're not just blindly training a certain way, then yeah, I think that's where like actual growth for the athlete happens because ultimately it's the athlete's career. It's not ours. You know, we can, you know, we can certainly help, but if the athlete doesn't understand what they're doing, then, you know, the second that we're not laying eyes on them, like they could easily move backwards uh, in terms of their development. So uh, it's definitely a two way street. Like the athlete has to have a pretty good grasp of what they're doing. Then we also have to do a good job of not only interpreting the information of their assessments correctly, but also delivering it to an athlete in a way that they can understand it and derive value out of. 
What's your favorite like tool or gadget that's at driveline to help players? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. Uh, because there's certainly a variety of different things that we help athletes train with. Uh, so like some maybe command, some pitch design, uh, some velocity development, maybe some strength development. I mean, for me, just given how the company has evolved and also just other factors such as like the type of athletes we deal with and stuff. Most of my focus probably the last nine months or so has been really hammering my understanding of pitch design uh, and maybe even uh, game theory as well. Uh, so for me, Rap Soto is one that we use a lot. Uh, we, we have pitch effects as well, but uh, on a day-to-day basis, like if we're doing pitch design work, then Rap Soto is really helpful, but also kind of a combination of that and the Edgertronic cameras. Uh, the Edgertronics, there's really no, there's really no replacement for that. Like you can, quite literally see what the ball is doing in flight in uh, versus like uh rap Soto. It takes an image of it and then it like projects out on the screen what the axis would look like. And those usually match up well with what we see on video, but the edgertronic is just so amazing in how well it captures such a high speed complex movement. Uh, and it delivers, delivers a, uh, a set of information to the athletes and trainers on what is happening in that fraction of a second, uh, because it's information like that that can ultimately, you know, help an athlete get hitters out versus maybe giving up a few more barrels. Uh, so, like for me, I would say my favorites are personally the wrap zone and electronics, just because it quantifies what pitches are. It makes it you're no longer guessing as to what a pitch does. You're no longer guessing as to what causes a spin axis. You see it happen. And then you can give very specific advice on how to make changes. You're not, you're not the guy sitting behind the mound, uh, just eyeing pitches break or the breaks on pitches and giving, giving advice based on pure anecdotes. Like you can actually make designing a pitch much more efficient. The things that maybe took, you know, a couple months to design in the past just because it's pure trial and error and you're just guessing. Now those same things might take a week or maybe two weeks or maybe even less. Uh, so for us, given, especially given the fact that particularly professional athletes, we, you know, we don't see them for many months at a time. Uh, usually we see them for like a week, you know, for an assessment period and then, you know, they kind of leave. So having tools like that to quantify what pitches do, uh, to make that design process much more efficient is huge for us. Pitch design. Um, what kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really a pitcher. So in terms of like pitch design, I mean, I feel like there's a way to throw a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, all that stuff. So kind of, what do you mean by a pitch design? Basically designing shapes of pitches. So it's, it's all relative to each pitcher individually. Uh, you know, for instance, the particular action of a slider for one pitcher may be terrible for the next guy. It may, it may work for pitcher A, but it may suck for pitcher B. So how do you address that? Uh, so basically it comes to evaluating pitch break. Uh, one thing Rap Soto does really well 
is it gives you an idea of what the pitch's lateral movement is versus vertical break, and then it gives you uh, that data in real time uh, after every pitch. Uh, there's other tools that you don't really get to evaluate that until like after your bullpen session or your game is done. Uh, Rapso gives that pitch to pitch, so we see it on screen. We can make instant adjustments. Uh, why is this important? So to give the, I don't know, to give like the, I guess the Ottavino example. So he came in with a really low swing rate on his breaking ball. And some of that had to do with just the fact that he had a couple of mechanical things messed up. He was striding too far across his body, which he normally strides a little bit across his body, but he was striding too far. Uh, so he worked on correcting that, uh, just helping his direction. Some helped him become more accurate, but then also like developing a pitch that was somewhere velocity wise in between his fastball and his, slider uh that more or less looks like a heater coming out of his hands and then it just didn't have the same a uh, lateral break to the arm side as his heater uh so like i guess that's like one example of how you do it for like an individual but uh you're basically assessing pitch shapes relative to each other uh you're assessing pitch breaks uh specifically relative to each other, determining where those lie against league averages. And then from there, you kind of formulate a plan of attack on either changing a pitch, scrapping a pitch, or just in general, uh, creating a plan of attack on figuring out like what percentages of each pitch do you throw in a game? So, I mean, I won't, I won't go too much into like pitch usage percentage because that gets into like game theory stuff that we just don't know enough about yet that we certainly are working on trying to figure out. But in the meantime, just assessing where each pitch falls against league averages and then helping pitch shapes uh, work pair with each other better uh, in terms of like, you know, if a pitcher throws more down the zone than not or sorry, if a pitcher throws more down the zone with a heater, then making sure that, you know, he's able to pair that with something that also works well down the zone. Uh, with Trevor Bauer, like one of the things he had a problem with is not that he throws fastballs down the zone. He throws fastballs mostly up actually, but he has this big breaking curveball and it's a really good pitch in a vacuum. If guys uh, have to swing at it, it's a tough pitch, but the problem is that's, totally fake news like hitters don't want to swing at nasty breaking pitches they want to swing at heaters so if trevor's choices are between curveball and fastball and those are the only two pitches he can really use then hitters are just naturally going to take his curveball more which means that he's got to throw it at a higher rate of strikes uh in order to be equally as sex as successful uh which while that's possible that's not really reality uh you don't want hitters taking all of your pitches. Like you want to be able to like solicit swings when you want to. So that's why Trevor, the last few off seasons has been working on some kind of pitch that it looks like a heater out of his hand, uh, but then has like different uh, vertical and lateral profile to be able to miss barrels. So that's why last off season you saw him trying to develop a splitter. Uh, but when he went to high intent with it, it just didn't work out very well. So this offseason, he went to either trying to develop a changeup or a uh, kind of like a slurve slider type thing that basically has like a lot of glove side lateral break and then 
uh, it just turned out that the slider was what he uh, was able to develop much easier. And so he just kind of went with that. And that's why you see him throwing that pitch a lot more. But yes, uh, that was kind of like a very long-winded way to say that like pitch design is ultimately trying to assess where pitches lie against league averages, assessing shapes, how they relate to each other uh, to then kind of ultimately give the athlete information on what pitches they should throw the most, what pitches they should throw least, how to attack hitters in certain situations and things like that. Would you say that Trevor Trevor Bauer is kind of like the way of pitching as like J.D. Martinez is with hitting? Um, I have a unique perspective on that because I've, I've been very lucky to have him as a person that I've been able to bounce information off of for a very long time. I mean, yeah, he's – I think he's just – been ahead of a lot of people on this stuff it's not to say that like physically he's the best pitcher in the game or anything but i think in terms of being an ambassador towards i mean one i think not just pitching but i think he in general just wants to move the game of baseball forward into the future a little bit but i don't know i mean there's definitely other pitchers that i I think dan straley does a great job of doing research on pitching and You know, he's a guy that's 90, he averages like 90-ish. He'll get up to 92, 93 on some days. But he's he's been a guy that he's had to do the proper training to stay healthy. He's had to, like, learn some of the analytics stuff to know how to use his stuff to get hitters out in the big leagues since he doesn't have premium velocity with the fastball. Uh, With Trevor, he's a little bit different because uh, he's, he's learned how to develop premium velocity uh, but then he's also, he's always coming up with ideas. I mean, he's still, shoot, like every offseason he comes in, like he, the first thing he says is, where's my wind tunnel? Like he, he like he like he, he wants, uh, you know, he wants like to always be pushing the bounds of baseball science, like trying to figure out why pitches move the way they do. Uh, certainly we know a fair amount why pitches move the way they do, but we don't know enough. And, so like Trevor actually, in a perfect world, he would have a wind tunnel where he can play with these things and get like better feedback on why his pitches move, you know, in certain directions on certain throws versus the others. Uh, but yeah, I think certainly in terms of understanding training, understanding game theory and pitch design stuff, yeah, Trevor is pretty far ahead of most guys in MLB. I would say, you know, it's not to say that he's the best pitcher in the game because I don't think that I think he can be like, I think he's got the stuff to be, uh, you know, I certainly think, I think right now, like if I have to pick a guy, it's definitely, you know, Scherzer, like if I have to go win a game with anybody, but you know, Trevor, I think, you know, in terms of what you're talking about in terms of like being an ambassador towards or for this type of stuff, I think it shows in the fact that he's just continue to improve every year. You look at his his war, uh, his strikeouts, his walks. He's improved like most of his numbers every single you know every single year. And even last year, when early on his ERA was high, his advanced numbers were pretty low. Uh, and so that was pretty reflective in the second part of the season. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I've been able to talk to him for a very long time. He's a big reason why I'm in the position I'm in now. And, uh, He's definitely a 
very thoughtful person and a great source of pitching information for sure. Speaking of kind of how players age, um, I was watching Verlander earlier today and he seems, you know, speaking, just kind of piggybacking on what happened last year. He seems he's just, he's really getting back into dominating like he was, you know, earlier in his career. Um, why can some pitchers continue to get better, I guess, as they age when normally when you, when you age, your velocity starts to decrease and you can't get hitters out? Some of, I think there's like a couple of factors there. I think one is just individual preparation. Like some guys, as they get older, uh, to be quite frank, like if they're on huge multi-year deals, some guys just stop caring as much. Uh, you see that with a couple guys around the league and then others are pretty hell bent on being the best pitcher of all time. And so I don't know Verlander. Uh, you know, I can't speak for him, but he seems pretty in tune with uh, what he does in the off seasons and seems to understand very well, you know, what works for him. Uh, and then also I think there's the potential that there's a large information gap in between teams. Uh, the Astros are very well known for being the most aggressive with analytics. And so I think he was a guy that benefited greatly from that. I think Garrett Cole has benefited greatly from that as well. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe if they're stuck on a different team, maybe their pitches are used differently. You know, maybe they give up more barrels. Cause I mean, honestly, the, the margin for error in the big leagues is pretty thin. Like, the difference in giving up, you know, 10 runs over the course of a long season could be, you know, the difference in a couple points of player value. Right. So, uh, and I, I, I say player value, uh, just to, like encompass like any sort of advanced statistic, not trying to point out war specifically, but just, I mean, anything, anything you may look at in terms of understanding, like, the true player value versus like just ERA alone, uh, you know, understanding how each pitcher is supposed to be used is a big thing. I think that's probably the biggest gap in between teams right now. I think there's like a big information gap between uh, many teams in the big leagues. And I think, you know, credit to the Astros. I think they're the best at using analytics to get the most out of their players, but there's certainly other teams that are, you know, kind of, kind of catching up as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. But, but yeah, I think o overall, you know, some guys, as they get older, they just get better understanding their body and how to adapt to getting older. And then other guys just don't care. And then may, it, it also like very much could do with like the team they're on as well. If you could give advice to an up and coming, just high school pitcher, um, what would it be? Uh, throw stuff really hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, in a sense like that, in a sense, that's it. But, um, I would say most high schoolers, especially in 2018 are playing way too much. Uh, like you've got to spend some time in an off season to develop tools. And if you look, go look at the average high schooler versus the average big leaguer, the difference in body composition is totally different. Uh, I think our high school kids, particularly in baseball, don't spend enough time on developing strength, uh, movement quality, mass, uh, the things that are like almost prerequisites for being a high level college player or a high level uh, professional athlete. So I think like taking into account things that are not necessarily baseball skill related is something that needs to happen more with high school kids. Like they just want to like, 
if they want to solve any sort of baseball solution or baseball problem, excuse me, they want the solution to be in a baseball skill arena. And oftentimes that just isn't the case. Like most, most college guys that we have coming into our facility right now are often being put on strength focuses because we don't feel like they have sufficient amount of strength to, uh, you know, generate the type of results that they're looking for. And so that means that sometimes we got to taper off of the throwing stuff a little bit. And I know we're known a lot for like chunking weighted balls, you know, hundred plus miles an hour and like all this sort of stuff. But the reality is that that's a pretty limited sample. Like watching Bauer pull down 113 with a three ounce ball is an extremely limited sample size that only occurs with like very certain athletes and the rest are, you know, working on, you know, just becoming a much better athlete in general uh, from both the movement quality and strength side. So I, I would say that high school guys need to sometimes look at, look for uh, solutions to problems that are not necessarily in the baseball skill arena and look at the more general scope of their athleticism. How, how much of a break should um, high school pitchers be taking like after their season or just like how many months of year of the year should they, should they not throw? I mean, it depends on how good they are. Right. I mean, if you have a guy that's, you know, a potential first round pick, then obviously you don't want him. You don't want him throwing a ridiculous amount of innings, but at the same time, he may not want to take time off because he needs to be ready to throw in specific showcases that, you know, quite honestly, maybe his performance in those showcases, is the difference between him getting 500 grand and $2 million in the draft. So definitely understand that point of view, but most high school kids are obviously not in that boat. Those are, you know, outliers I'm talking about. So most kids, I don't know. I, mean, I don't necessarily know if there's a proper amount of time to take off, but I definitely think that, you know, if an athlete has a particular goal, so let's say it's playing at the division one level and, you know, he's currently pitching it. He's currently a right-hander pitching at 80 to 83, and he knows he needs to be 90 to 93. Well, that's a pretty massive velocity gap that he's got to catch up on. So he's got to make a choice. Do I play summer ball? Do I play fall ball? Are those things going to help me accomplish my goals? Uh, probably not. Like, if you play more and you spend less time on developing yourself as an athlete, you're probably not going to reach those end goals, right? So maybe you spend more time away from the field trying to develop those tools. Uh, and then, you know, maybe if you're a guy that's like much closer to your goals, maybe you have to spend, you know, less time away from the field. There's no one size fits all time off, but I will say that uh, there needs to be some sort of time off. Uh, like I, I don't know. I think playing games in December is in January is quite honestly ridiculous, but some people do it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, like I would say that, you know, it, it depends on the athlete situation, like what their goals are. You know, if an athlete is not a professional caliber athlete and he just wants to enjoy playing baseball through the end of high school, and then he wants to go off to college, then shoot, play as much as you want. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, this is America. Do what you want, you know? But uh, at the same time, like, you just have to be smart about what you want out of your life, what you want out of your baseball career, and then work backwards uh, 
to figure out what your process is towards reaching for reaching those goals. And sometimes that means you take more time off. Sometimes that means less. And then also it means, you know, evaluating your workloads during the spring and summer. How many innings did you log? Uh, there is, there is a certain amount of time that needs to be taken off relative to workload already logged. So if an athlete logs a hundred innings between the spring and the summer, maybe you need to take four weeks off. Uh, if nothing else, just to get to just get away from baseball for a little bit. Uh, you know, I know some people may love baseball, but shoot, you need to like live your life a little bit and do other things. Uh, you know, and also the benefit to that is, you know, sometimes, when they come back from having time off, they're much more willing to put in better work uh, because there's nothing worse than just going through the motions and, you know, ultimately not accomplishing much out of your training. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into time off, but you know, I would say that's, that's kind of the best way to summarize it. Yeah. I like that perspective of, of doing other things as well. Um, last question I have for you. Are you guys, what are you guys working on right now at driveline? Are you working on anything new or, um, just kind of take me through of, of, of what the future looks like, uh, at driveline? Um, I don't know if it's like anything new or I, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to offer. I, I don't know necessarily what the public would be considering new. Uh, but for us, our primary, our primary goal right now is to, be able to mobilize our biomechanics lab as much as we can, uh, kind of take it around the country to be able to give athletes better access to higher quality assessments so that, you know, when they're off on their own training, uh, they get better programs. They have better information to train off of. Uh, so in a, in a sense, like being able to take our lab that's here in Seattle and being able to roll it out at, you know, campuses like Ole Miss and Vanderbilt, and various, you know, facilities around the country to be able to have athletes come and be assessed uh, and then be able to, like, have better information for programming so that, you know, they know more about themselves than maybe they would otherwise. So I would say that that's a huge part. And, and there's other initiatives, you know, in terms of, like, you know, hopefully moving the game of baseball forward. But, you know, I could talk <laughs> at least another hour about that. So I'll kind of let that rest. <laughs> Matt, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on today. It's been a pleasure, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, again, you know, good luck to you guys uh, in the upcoming playoffs. And, uh, you know, give them hell. Appreciate it. 